supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long, shifting from day into dusk into darkness. Lights on, because in Sydney, we ignite the night. We are go to light up our Sydney sky. You don't want to miss this. Panasonic Air Conditioning Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Triple H's double disqualification from the opening leg of the Newcastle 500 has been upheld. The matter was heard by Walter Sofronoff KC, Steve Chopping and Ross Jackson at Motorsport Australia House in Melbourne last Wednesday, with the decision to uphold the disqualification coming that same night. General Motors has announced that 2024 will be the final year of production for the Camaro. The move leaves a question mark over the brand's racing future in the likes of NASCAR and supercars, although the latter has already confirmed that the Camaro will continue to race until at least the end of 2025. Shane Van Gisbergen has revealed his rallying plans for the year, with the Kiwis set to drive an Audi in four rounds of the New Zealand Rally Championship. Chris Pither has locked in his racing program for the year as well, the former Premier Racing Supercars driver making the move to Carrera Cup. It will be his first crack at their One Mate Porsche series, and he'll debut at Albert Park this weekend. Alex Davison will also be on the Carrera Cup grid at Albert Park this weekend as an injury stand-in for Scott Taylor. Marcus Ambrose will make a second attempt at starting the Bathurst Six Hour next month, teaming up once again with George Medecki in a Ford Mustang. The pair will be joined by Tim Brook in the driving lineup. They did try and race at the Six Hour last year, but had to pull out at the last minute due to issues with the car. There's a new brand coming to TCR Australia with Ash Seawood Motorsports set to run a Lincoln Co. for Tom Oliphant. The car will debut at Phillip Island in May. Lewis Bates and Anthony McLaughlin took an early lead in the Australian Rally Championship with outright honours at Rally Launceston. And Walkinshaw Andretti United will expand into the Toyota 86 Series this year, running a car for apprentice mechanic and promising young driving talent Matt Hillier as part of the WAU Foundation Academy. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that during Grand Prix week likes to remind everyone that he's more South Australian than Peter Malinowskis and Valtteri Bottas combined, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you this week? G'day, Andrew. That's pretty good company to be keeping with those mm. blokes. I don't mind I that. Both great South Aussies. Surely you'll be uh, you'll be pestering your mate Valtteri for uh, some of this new gin he's releasing. Mm. What what is a? I mean, I believe there's a South Australian sort of flavour to this. What is a South Australian flavour? What's the what's that iced coffee that you guys love? Is it going to have hints oh, of that I in it? I don't think the Farmers Union or anything to do with it. But uh, apparently, Union, it's that's it. Distilled with apple peels from the Adelaide Hills, and I can tell oh, you, wow. those apple peels are the best in the world that you get up in the Adelaide Hills. No doubt about wow, that. Well, so. If there's not a Stobie pole on the label, then I'm going to be uh, pretty disappointed. <laughs> that's all. 
That's all I've got to say on the matter. Anyway, let's kick things off uh, with the news that Cameron Waters is officially the winner of race one of the 2023 Supercast Championship and that the two Red Bull Camaros remain disqualified from that Newcastle opener. That was the outcome from the hearing held at Motorsport Australia House last Wednesday evening. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there was a decision on the night which we weren't necessarily expecting, but that's how quickly they wrapped it all up. Uh, Now, a detailed report of the hearing was then issued by Motorsport Australia on Friday to outline why the appeal was rejected and the disqualification upheld. According to the report, Triple Eight did stick to its argument that Head of Motorsport Adrian Burgess had given the placement of the dry ice radiator the thumbs up. That is uh, something that Burgess, according to report, emphatically denied. Now, the two grounds for the appeal from Triple Eight were, fir- uh, were that, firstly, the, the stewards ought to have concluded that the Instruction authorised the system as installed. That's effectively based on Rule 2.1.6, which says each competitor is responsible for ensuring that their car complies with the conditions of eligibility contained in the rules throughout each event and all supercars authorised activities, including all rides at supercars test days, as described in Rule D1, unless instructed by the HOM. That was countered by the panel that the rule doesn't actually give the HOM full power to go rogue from the rules and start authorising stuff willy-nilly. The second grounds for the appeal was that Rule C2.4 hadn't been considered by the stewards in the hearing. Now, Rule C2.4, which was the second grounds for the T8 appeal, does grant the HOM that power by outlining that in an area of minor non-compliance, he may endorse the car's logbook to that effect and notify the stewards accordingly. It also says minor non-compliance does not improve performance to such an extent that the car should be disqualified from the event. So if I'm understanding the report correctly, and there's no actual guarantee of that because these things can be quite (laughs) confusing to read, but anyway, the issue with that argument from Triple Eight is that it didn't bring it up in the initial hearing in Newcastle. There was no case made to consider C2.4 at the time, and there was no obligation from the stewards to actually raise it. It's summed up by point 40 in the report, which reads, an appeal is not an opportunity to rerun the arguments on a penalty that failed before the stewards or to mount new arguments that were not run. It is a process to correct actual error. Stefan, my voice is about to give way, so time for you to do some talking on this. What's your take on the whole matter? I think you've summed it up pretty well there. It does come down to the fact that an appeal is not a rehearing unless there's been a major procedural error. And unfortunately for Triple Eight, the errors were them not getting the approval from Burgess in writing to begin with or bringing up the minor non-compliance rule in that initial stewards hearing. So the appeal outcome itself was no real surprise. But the bit that did raise my eyebrows was the statement Triple H put out afterwards. So despite what the appeal underlined, the team focused its statement on its claim that Burgess gave them approval. They've still got Burgess absolutely in the gun for this. And on one hand, I respect their conviction, but at the same time, it's a shocking look for the category to have the champion team repeatedly stating the head of motorsport can't be trusted. Like there comes a point where pushing that line becomes detrimental to the integrity of the category. Yeah, I mean, obviously the the, the whole notion of, you know, disrepute or being disrespectful to elements of the sport has been in the headlines for the last few weeks. Um, And this is certainly a case that has kind of gone under the radar. I mean, Jamie Winkup was pretty scathing when he spoke to us in Newcastle about what he felt the treatment of the team from the series was. There's obviously a bit of feeling there given that 
Triple Eight has built and designed this car. Not that I think they did that for free. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they copped a decent earn out of actually doing that. But this sense of, hey, we've done all this work for the category and this is how you repay us. I mean, that's almost how it felt, right? Yeah, but as, as you say, it, it wasn't charity. They were contracted to do a lot of work for yep. uh, for Gen 3. But, yeah, it's, it's a shame that the whole thing has has forever stained that Gen 3 rollout in a way that no one could have ever imagined. Like, really, it should have been one of the greatest achievements for AAA to roll out 1-2 in that first Gen 3 race. And this is, uh, yeah, this is um, taking that all away. I still feel like, you know, in terms of nothing much has actually changed from my first impressions of what went on here. I do believe that as the initial hearing found that it was a misunderstanding, that the team was probably acting on the idea that there was no issue with having that dry ice box located where it was, but that hadn't been sought in the proper manner and the stewards were left with no choice but to throw them out of the race because at the end of the day, I also don't buy the fact that this is completely non-performance or that there's no scope for it to be non-performance because if you're going to start letting guys move stuff around in the cockpit, then that can definitely have a performance effect. Even in this exact case, it didn't. And that's the whole point of Division C rules being a blanket, no, no, you're out of the race because it kind of has to be that way because you can't open Pandora's box. Um, one thing I found a little interesting, Steph, and we chatted about this last week, is that there was a little hint in this in, in the in the full explanation, the full report from the appeal about why the system ended up on that side of the car in the first place. Because in Newcastle, when we spoke to Jamie Winkup, he told us that it was better having it on the passenger side anyway. And if that was the case, it really begged the question as to why it didn't mm. start there, why they didn't just install it there in the very first place. And I guess that was something we were sort of talking about last week. Um, but the report here states that Triple Eight team manager Mark Dutton said that having it on the right-hand side of the car had it away from the muffler and away from the exhaust system which exits on the passenger side. So unlike where the cool suit box in, which would make it more efficient. So it was kind of interesting. I think we at least answered that question out of this thing. Yeah, that was that was notable. But what we didn't find out was whether having the icebox there would have been deemed minor non-compliance because it was mm. a moot point in the end anyway. But I tell you what, like the fallout of this is bubbling away under the surface and could yet boil over at Albert Park because I believe several teams have been scrambling to clarify minor non-compliance issues with supercars trying to get written approval for tiny things on their cars because, you know, like with the spec nature of these Gen 3 cars, the tightness of the rules, the lateness of the project, you can bet everyone has a different nut or bolt here or there. There's something yeah. out of place and everyone is afraid that Triple Eight is going to go on a protesting blitz at Albert Park. That is fascinating. It's kind of exciting as well. <laughs> something to just look forward to for us, Stefan. That's, uh, that's always... Always good fun. Let's move on to another big story that's broken since last week, and that is that the end is nigh for the Camaro. Firstly, this is absolutely not surprising in the least. I feel like it's always been the little asterisk that's hung over Gen 3 and the introduction of that. What will happen when GM does what everyone expects GM to do and axe the Camaro? As it stands, GM says the Camaro story isn't over, but there's been no immediate announcement um, on a seventh generation car to replace this sixth generation car. And all the buzz seems to be that should the Camaro nameplate continue, it will do so. 
maybe as an electric platform or a crossover or high, or, or SUV or whatever. It, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily going to be something that's a great fit for supercars. Um, supercar CEO Shane Howard was quickly on the front foot saying that the Camaro will continue to race until at least the end of 2025 in the series. But however you look at it, Stefan, it's just shit timing, right? I mean, one race into the Gen 3 era and one of the cars has been slapped with this sense of being obsolete already. Yes, but the timing could have been worse. If it had come out the week of Newcastle, then I think <laughs> Shane true. criticizing the cars would have been the least of their troubles from a PR perspective. But um, yeah, clearly this announcement, no matter you know before or after Newcastle, it does have very bad optics for supercars. But it needs that perspective that you've touched on there, that this was no surprise to anyone no. in the industry and it doesn't have any immediate ramifications. I mean, the fact that Camaro isn't even sold in Australia says it all. Like The modest yeah. amount of current Chevrolet support isn't based around selling Camaros here anyway. And we don't know what Chevrolet is going to do with its road cars, but they'll need something to race in NASCAR from yeah. 2025. So... Hopefully, that'll provide a pathway for supercars as well. Do we spend too much time actually worrying about this road car relevance? Like, I really kind of feel that we do. I mean, that was obviously a big part of this whole Gen 3 thing, you know? Firstly, to stop racing a car that wasn't sold anymore in the ZB Commodore or wasn't produced at all. Um, and, you know, the other part was to create these racing cars that look more like their road-going counterparts. But I've always been kind of the view that racing cars can just be racing cars too. And I know that becomes tricky for manufacturers uh, and in, uh, with their support, but we have Formula One cars that you can't buy from your local dealership zooming around. We have Aston Martins racing in Formula One that are powered by Mercedes engines. People go to the Speedway in droves, but very few jump in a road legal sprint car to head home at the end of the night. And I get that that's not a heavily manufacturer-backed form of our sport, so it's not an entirely apples-for-apples apples comparison, but... You get the picture, right? I mean, a sport can just be a sport as well. I do see where you're coming from, and I agree to an extent, but what does that picture actually look like beyond the current Camaro? Because it's it's not open-wheel racing. They actually need bodies to look like yeah. something. And if the new Camaro is an electric SUV and there's no suitable Chev alternative, like what do they do then? They're kind of racing the sunset in terms of what cars are, are actually being produced by the manufacturers and sold on the street that are actually in any way suitable for racing outside of pure GT cars. But just take a silhouette body that looks roughly like whatever the Camaro becomes, whatever SUV it is, who cares? Stretch it. Like we're not going to end up, it doesn't have to end up in a Mustang situation. I think that the way that the platform is now, you could just make a body that looks cool. Like, don't worry about how much it effectively looks like the road car. Just make them cool-looking racing cars. I think you can do that. It's interesting. I'm sure they'll want to get more life out of this Gen 3 platform than just the next uh, couple of seasons that the Camaro has been confirmed for at the moment. So, so they'll find a way because a lot of people sort of point to existing other formulas as being the answer here. You know, a lot of people point to GT3 being the way forward, but no. really it's not. Like, as you know, no the way. capital cost, the crash repair cost is yep. just outrageous and they're not suited to our tracks. And then, you no. know, you look the at some The racing's not good enough. The racing wouldn't be good enough. Yeah, and the DTM, I think, is, is proof of some of the issues with, with that. Yep. So you look at some of the other stuff, GT4 is too slow, TCR yep. isn't exciting, and it's a little bit shaky in terms of that market segment. 
of road car as well. And yeah, Trans Am has the same relevance issues as Gen Three. So yeah, there's there's no clear way forward in in any direction at the moment. Yep, absolutely, couldn't agree more. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. While we're on the subject of supercars, let's have a little look ahead to the Melbourne 400 at Albert Park this weekend. Uh, it's always a bit of an odd one with supercars not really being the main event, and it almost feels a bit further down the pecking order this year given the strict TV windows, you know, not just for F1 but for F2 and F3 as well. But anyway, it promises to be a fascinating test for these new Gen 3 cars. We've got that odd little tie mix with the super soft and the hard compound in use and qualifying split across those two compounds. And the pressure will be on in the stops where races will likely be won or lost given that it's tyres only and there have been those niggling nut issues that we've seen so far with these Gen 3 cars. Stefan, what's caught your eye heading into the weekend? Yeah, well, just like Newcastle, there's a huge amount of unknowns yet again being such a different circuit. It's a different set of challenges for, for the parity and also the racing quality and, and tyres, as you touched on, will be a massive talking point i mean the way the new high speed albert park layout tore through the softs caught a few people out last year and it's really unclear what having less aero with these gen 3 cars will do like it, it'll mean there's less peak load in the corners but if the cars are sliding on the surface it could actually be really hard on the rubber so there's that and then there's some wet weather forecast in there too particularly early in the weekend so we might even see the new wets get a get a run that would be interesting. I know it was, you know, let's imagine we are just running in the draw. I know it was a bit of a mixed bag for Triple Eight at Albert Park this year, but I just sort of feel like the sort of finesse required to get the best out of the Super Soft this weekend is going to play beautifully into Shane Van Gisbergen's hands, whether he's actually having fun behind the wheel or not. Mm. Um, and I do feel like there were some very ominous signs about the speed of those Triple Eight Camaros in Newcastle, even if we are heading to an entirely different track. Have you got any more adventurous predictions for the weekend, Stefan, or could this just be a really good weekend for Shane? It's obviously very hard to make predictions beyond uh, the notion that Shane will be pretty competitive, but um, I'm certainly interested to see how both Premier and Dick Johnson Racing go. They were the big winners and, and the big losers, respectively, in Newcastle. I wouldn't be surprised to see either Premier driver on the podium at some point this weekend. Newcastle clearly showed that those two drivers – Tim Slade and James Golding will, will push each other through the year. And with DJR, I expect they will run a fair bit better than they did in Newcastle, but where that puts them in the order is, is pretty hard to know. We did see Tickford, Matstone Racing and Grove Racing do some testing at the Bend last week, using up rookie days for Decker Fraser, Cam Hill and Matty Payne. Do you think that might make a difference heading into the weekend? Obviously, the choice of track was very deliberate, going to a somewhat similar layout this weekend. Yeah, I'm sure it can't hurt those guys. And 
I think there's a chance of some really mixed grids across the weekend with different players popping up, like being such a long lap and the fact that drivers are still adapting to the cars. It's it's going yeah. to be very hard just from a driving point of view to nail all four qualifying sessions across two different compounds. And it's also well, basically a shootout, right? It, it basically becomes a shootout. Yeah, well, the sessions are a little longer this weekend, but then you're limited on your allocation as well. So yeah. we'll see how they play They play it. But um, if you look at the weekend as a whole, it's such a front-loaded schedule as well. Like there's five sessions on Thursday, including the opening race, and then five more across the remaining three days. So just ignoring any chance of rain, the track condition should be a fair bit different on Thursday before all that F1, F2, F3 rubber starts going down. So... Yeah, it'll be hard to be quick all weekend. Like if you if you quick Thursday, you're not going to be able to just stand still and run what you got for the rest of the weekend because it'll evolve quite a lot. Yeah, I think we'll see in those qualities. Coming back to the quality situation, I think it will be you know the guys were talking about the shootouts in Newcastle, and it was sort of a case of who can make the least amount of mistakes is going to end up at the top as opposed to just going out and actually just driving the car to its limit like they used to do in the shootouts or driving to whatever grip limit they kind of had at the time. Um, so I think it'll be very much the same this weekend. Um, as I mentioned before, it's not all about supercars at Albert Park. Uh, of course, Formula One is back in town as well. And we will see Melbourne lad Oscar Piastri make his first Grand Prix start on home soil, which I reckon is going to make it a pretty special weekend. To preview the Australian Grand Prix, I got the chance to chat with 1996 Formula One world champion and two-time AGP winner, Damon Hill. And here's what he had to say. Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 already been a lot of talk about, you know, a Red Bull whitewash this season. The predictions have been coming in thick and fast. Uh, where do you stand on the matter? Could we see one team clean sweep the uh, the entire season this year, do you think? Yeah, I think that it was probably a little bit premature to, to call it um, done and dusted. Um, two races in. <laughs> so Sergio uh, put up a, a mighty defence there to win in Saudi Arabia. So I think it's another factor in the in the equation which w- could be interesting. Can he take the fight to Max? That was actually my next question. I mean, it was an impressive drive in Saudi Arabia. He had the leg up on the qualifying thing but had to hold his ground in the race itself. Do you think he has got the challenge to at least be a bit of a thorn in Max's yeah. side this year? I think I think the problem you have is that Max is a, a, a bit of a force of nature, mm. and within the team, it's ha- it's how much pressure he can put on the team to make sure he his championship aspirations are not interfered with by by Checo, you know. And and from the point of view of the sport, I think that they need to let. Checo have every opportunity to fight um, with a, with a, a level playing field within that team, because I know the pressure from from the Verstappen's, uh, his dad as well, mm. will be intense on on Red Bull, and he will be pulling out the card of saying, "Listen, I'm your future. You know, you, the whole opportunity is built around me. You know, and he'll be leveraging them." And, you know, so Checo knows what he's up against, but uh, I think he's not going to go down without a fight, so it could be quite interesting. How tough is that political game to play? You would know this. You were in teams with race-winning cars, you know, in title-winning seasons. How difficult is it playing that political game and making sure you're the guy that's going to win the title? 
Yeah, you know, um, Cechi's got a very interesting man who manages him called um, Julian Jacobi. Julian Jacobi used to work for Alan Prost and Ayrton Senna. Um, so he's been around a very long time and he knows this, knows this sport and he knows what goes on in Formula One teams. Um, and I think Cechi as well is, he's a confident guy. I think when he went there, I thought that he's one of the few people I can think of who can be strong enough to not get bullied by the team, you know, into submission. I think you've seen young guys go there and they've they've found themselves without friends and it, it, they can be intimidated and they've had to go elsewhere like Gasly and, um, you know, Albon. They've both been through that system and, and, and Crush, you could even see um, Mark Webber as well and, and Daniel Ricciardo mm-hmm. have experienced that. Yeah. You know, it's it's a tough environment with Red Bull. They're not they're not fully. They don't put their arm around you and go, "Oh, we'll look after you. Don't worry." Um, you know, so Checo's got people in his corner, um, and we'll see how it plays out. It, whatever happens, it, it will not. The, the, the Verstappen's will not be taking it lying down at all. You know, you saw after Saudi Arabia that Max was. I would say sulking is not not too strong a word. Um, he looked very unhappy about um, the way things went. Um, and they don't like coming second that lot. <laughs> not at all. I guess just how dominant that car is will depend how much freedom the team might give those drivers. I mean, it's not unusual for a team to have the dominant car in Formula 1. Lewis is saying that this Red Bull is the most dominant car He's seen. Where do you sit on that? Is this a bigger advantage than perhaps Mercedes had under the previous rule set in some years, or is this just sort of Lewis saying yeah. those things? I think so far, he said the fastest car has ever, has ever been in Formula One. I think what he meant was because uh, they got a huge speed differential when they got the DRS open, mm. they, they they're able to get much more acceleration. So I think they've they've done some work on how the, that's going to catch everyone's attention. I noticed that last year they've got a very interesting laid back rear wing which which when you look at it when it goes into drs mode it's got a very very low profile i think they've done a lot of work on that and it gives them a bigger advantage than the others when they're on drs so i'm sure that every other team will be looking at that and thinking we've we maybe missed a trick here but they um you know they um they were just slipped past everyone you know once they got the drs open there's no stopping them Fernando's having a bit of a honeymoon with Aston Martin at the moment. Two podiums in a row would be better than you would have thought that he and the team would have even expected heading into the season. Do you see their ambitions growing beyond being the second best team? Should they be thinking about how to close the gap to Red Bull or should their focus just be on staying ahead of Mercedes and Ferrari at this point? I think they're, I think they're set their sights at the very top. I don't think they have set their sights in the middle at all. I think that Lawrence Stroll is a hugely ambitious and very successful businessman. And he does not uh, go into something hoping to be a player, just one of the, one of the people that make up the podium. He wants to win. So I think they, they will reassess their, their sights now to getting that win. Uh, so if, if it just means we'll one race win or two race wins, you know, I think they are, they are looking to be title challenges. I mean, they have spoken about, you know, a time plan of five years or whatever it is, but, you know, they're ahead of their expectations, I think now. So, um, 
if they fin- they could well finish runner up in the in the championship this year behind um, maybe behind one one of the other teams, um, you know. Um, Lance Lance has had a bit, bit of a rough start and a bit and been a bit unlucky. So once he gets on the song, they'll be scoring bagfuls of points um, and taking quite a lot off of uh, maybe let's say Ferrari even. You know, what are your early early thoughts on Oscar Piastri? Obviously, the McLaren isn't where it really needs to be for those guys to be proper contenders at the moment, but he does seem to at least kind of be closer than Lando than perhaps we saw from Dan Ricciardo last year where what do you make of him so far no I'd agree with that and um, again the what happened to Dan Ricciardo was a bit of a mystery I'm not sure what happened there but you know Oscar's come in bright eyed bushy tailed and, and looking confident and, and very much at home in, in Formula 1 um, and he's put in some already put in some impressive performances so uh, the you know, it bodes well for for the rest of the season. I'm sure that um, Lando, when he gets warmed up, will be a tougher nut to crack. Mm. But uh, he'll he'll learn a lot. And if they can, you know, it's it's about qualifying pace as well. You know how you compare. And he did a good job in in Saudi. And um, so coming to Melbourne, he's going to be getting a lot of attention. And he'll, you know, it's whether that distracts him. I, it, but it doesn't strike me as the sort of person who's uh, easily distracted or um, you know, interested in the, the the peripheral stuff that happens with Formula One, he seems to be um, very keen, a very keen and um, focused racer. So you know, Mark and Mark Webber be giving him all the tips for how to cope with the your home Grand Prix. You referenced his qualifying effort in Saudi Arabia. How big a confidence boost do you think that is for a driver in a rookie season? I mean, it's just such a critical time in your career to get some runs on the board. It is. It is. You know, you, you, if you get off to a bad start, a shaky start, it can take all season to get that back again. I think people are very quick to judge or look for the signs. And the, you know, the, the, the great drivers came in to Formula One with a bang. They arrived. Everyone sat, you know, Michael Schumacher or Max Verstappen. You know, they come out of Senna. They 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 come in, and everyone goes, "Wow, where did that come from? Who who are these? You know, who's this guy?" Um, and that's you know, that's where I wouldn't say that Oscars have the opportunity to do quite that, but he definitely has looked very competent um, and solid. Uh, he's not someone who you've gone, oh my god, you know, he's going to have. It looks a bit shaky, you know. Mick, Mick Schumacher never really put in one of those sit up and take notice performances, uh, and and has struggled with that to recover that, um, uh, inspire that confidence that you need to have. People need to have in the driver, and then then if, before you know it, it, gets, it becomes a massive snowball effect you know where the snowball gets heavier and heavier and you get crushed by it so um you know that's so far for oscar he's not got he's not got that problem to think about he's um he's he's put a very he's got a very firm footing from which to push off from the inevitable subplot because of everything that went on last year is you know where where is mclaren going to be in reference to alpine and even with williams which was going to be a choice for him had he signed his initial deal that car doesn't look too bad compared to the mclaren as well at the moment where do you stand on the decision that oscar made to to jump ship and go to mclaren last year 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what. No. I think he probably thought that McLaren were going to be the place to be. Yeah, I think he probably thought that was a better environment for him. I mean, Alpine um, are fundamentally good at the moment. They're not. They're not setting the world on fire, but um, they're looking. Uh, quite a bit more competitive than McLaren at the moment. So, yeah, um, you know, it may be he regrets that, but then he is, the other side of it is he's up against a driver in Lando who is very highly regarded. And so it's a curious thing in our sport that you are measured against your performance against your teammate as a driver. And you can be in a less competitive car, but if you're, competitive against a guy who some people thought or think is a world champion in the in the waiting then um that's all you need what are you expecting from melbourne this year in terms of the atmosphere i mean we've had australians on the albert park grid before mark weber daniel ricardo but oscar is actually a melbourneian you know he is from that city so for the first time there'll be a melbourne driver on the grid in the middle of melbourne how are you expecting the atmosphere to be on the ground this year so they're called Melburnians, are they? They're not are. called Melbourneites or no. whatever. Yeah, Melburnian. Yeah. Okay. You should no. learn that one so, for the coverage. That'll be handy so, for the coverage, I think. Uh, I, okay, yeah, a Melburnian. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that people would used to fly in from all over Australia to, to support um, their Australian drivers in the past. So uh, they just won't have to travel quite so far from Melbourne, will they, to support Oscar? Um, so yeah, I hope you'll suck in, um, quite a few, uh, Melburnians, fellow Melburnians and, uh, and they'll have something to cheer for. Yeah. It's good. Good idea. The, um, last question, you know, we're, as great as the Albert Park event is, the circuit doesn't always generate the best racing on the calendar. The changes last year didn't necessarily have a huge, um, impact. Do you think that adding this fourth DRS zone, which they sort of flirted with last year and didn't do, could make a difference? Or given what we're seeing from that Red Bull with its DRS activated, are we just further handing the thing straight to them by having more opportunity for them to use it? Yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised with the, with the changes they made, especially as I, I've been speaking to um, uh, the organisers a year before and, and given my own point of view as to what they should be doing to change the circuit and they did something completely different <laughs> so maybe i frightened them off but i don't know um but it's it, it, i i think that it, it, you need to create overtaking opportunities and the drs overtaking opportunities is not it's not necessarily what people want to see it is a it's an artifice um sometimes it's a necessary one but it's added something to the sport but i, I just think you know those overtakes where people have to break, outbreak someone into a corner and they can get them on the exit of a corner um, are the better ones to watch. Um, and so I would like to see some of the corners tighten up um, and create overtaking opportunities. Um, but um, So what was the Damon Hill master plan for Albert Park? Um, I... I, 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 I I was going to try and put in more what I call fumble fumble points, you know, places where it's easy to make a mistake. Um, and the so, you know, tighter, some tighter corners, some bigger braking uh, opportunities can can be 
um, be good. But listen, it's 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 got it is what it is, um, um, Melbourne, and it's uh, uh, you know it's not impossible to overtake or it's not impossible to race on that circuit. So you know it's it's a great venue right in the middle of of Melbourne, and it looks great, and people love coming there. So. Um, the drivers will be putting on a great show for you. And we thank Damon for his time there. You'll be able to hear plenty from him over the weekend as he plays a central role to the Network 10 coverage of the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, Stefan, as Damon highlighted, the efficiency of the Red Bull DRS system seems to be pretty outrageous. Given we got four DRS zones here this weekend and given the Red Bull seems to have a pretty decent speed advantage anyway, are we kind of headed towards a pretty predictable outcome this Sunday, Arvo, do you think? It does seem that Red Bull's only real threat is Red Bull. And I mean that both in terms of reliability after what we saw with Max's car in Saudi and also the tension between the two drivers. But certainly when it comes to Max versus Sergio, I think the fact Max is just quicker um, means that it's not exactly going to be a huge fight over the season, is it? Yeah, look, I think it's fairly optimistic to think Sergio is really going to push him over the whole year just based on, yeah, like you say, outright pace, which Max seems to have the edge on. The good news that we saw out of Saudi uh, was that it's not impossible for the McLaren to kind of turn on some speed, at least in qualifying. Um, And if you remember back to the Australian Grand Prix last year, the MCL 36 actually looked Less crap at Albert Park than it did pretty much anywhere else, I think. They were sort of uh, – Lando and and Dan were running somewhere near the front for most of the weekend, even if they didn't quite have the pace to be right at the front. I mean, even another Q3 appearance from Oscar here at Albert Park would be pretty special, right, Stefan? Less crap is such a beautiful way to describe McLaren's mm. Albert Park last year. But, um, yep. yeah, if if they're in they're in the mix somewhere in that midfield, so um, just the, the chance of a point on Sunday – would uh, be a great story. But I think Damon made a good point there about Oscar during your chat that no matter where the McLaren actually is in the order, the comparison against Lando will be there for him. So, yes, it would be great if the McLaren was more competitive, but he's not in a terrible spot there because no one expects him to beat Lando this early. But if he does, he's an absolute star. So it'll also be a huge weekend, obviously, off the track for Oscar as well. And I hope that he's really embraced by the Australian fans and there's no sort of hangover there lingering from everything that happened last year. I think the fact that he is actually from Melbourne, as I touched on before, I mean, that's a big deal here because in the era, in the modern era of the Melbourne Grand Prix, World Championship Grand Prix, we haven't had a Melbourne driver. You know, we had Hmm. Mark Weber from Queanbeyan and we had Daniel Ricciardo from Perth. This guy's from Melbourne, you know, so I, 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 I totally get what you're saying, and I, I would hope and assume that the fact that this is actually the Melbourne driver is going to make a difference. I guess the other, the, the flip side of that is that you know, a home Grand Prix is a pretty stressful thing, and we always saw Dan Ricardo struggle with it a little bit in terms of the off-track pressure that is on you, and the and the fact that everyone wants a piece of you even more so than they normally do on any other given Grand Prix weekend. Um, I think what may help Oscar in that respect is that Alpine really shopped him around as a Grand Prix driver at the Australian Grand Prix last year. He pretty much did everything that a Grand Prix driver would do on a Grand Prix weekend except hop in a Grand Prix car and drive it around a racetrack. So I think he got a little dry run of the off-track expectations at your home race last year and hopefully that gives him something to focus on 
Um, and he can lean on the experience of Mark Webber, who's obviously been through this plenty of times as well, and make sure he can focus on his driving and try and get the best out of whatever that car throws at them this weekend. Uh, before we move on from Aussie-themed Formula One stuff entirely, Stefan, what did you make of the little uh, Aussie GP prep video that Red Bull put out uh, on Monday? Well, it was it was obviously all a bit of fun and a very cool video, but it does feel a bit cheeky that they're claiming it's Daniel Ricciardo doing the driving, and we know he was in the US at the time of the teams at the team's 2023 launch certainly when that Bathurst 12-hour filming was done and it actually makes some sense now why the Red Bull people were so weird about what was going on at Bathurst because the filming they did with the supercar and the RB7 together on Saturday evening that wasn't even Liam Lawson driving either because he'd left the circuit earlier in the day after his demo laps I was I was there in the garage and I was told that it was their demo guru Patrick Friesacker who who'd done those laps, but the Red Bull guys did their best to shuffle him in and out of the car with Ricardo's helmet on and, and no one seeing his face. So yeah, the the fact that that was the the big plan sort of made that make a bit more sense. Yeah, it's it's an odd one because you know it's I I feel like. You could almost get away with it if they hadn't have done those like beach scenes in the video where he's left his helmet on or going in to look at a watch or buy a can <laughs> of Red Bull or whatever. But I think maybe that was actually the acknowledgement that, yeah, this is a bit of a piss take. Like this guy clearly wasn't actually part of this at all. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting one day. I mean, Dan's made no secret of his desire to race or to drive and race around Mount Panorama one day. So when he does land a drive in the 12 hour or something, It'll be interesting to see how he plays, you know, <laughs> this is my first time at Mount Panorama or, you know, does he have to try and keep the ruse alive and be like, no, no, I've been here before, remember? Remember when I drove that Formula One car here? It does just set him up for uh, a lot of awkward conversations whenever fans ask him about it, um, yeah, over the next few weeks in particular. But uh, the other thing from the video actually is like how they make those motors breathe in some of that thick dust during during some of those more sort of outback kind of scenes is uh, that's a real mystery too that's incredible absolutely all right let's take a look at what else is happening around the world there's been some sweeping changes at mclaren speaking about that team following the somewhat underwhelming start to the formula one season with technical director james key departing the squad a restructure will see McLaren move away from having a single technical director and instead have three specialists that will report to team principal Andrea Stella. So it's Peter Prodromo on the aero side, Neil Hoodley on the engineering and design, and ex-Ferrari man David Sanchez in car concept and performance, although he is on gardening leave until January 1, 2024. Reigning MotoGP champion Francesco Bagnaia made a perfect start to the new season by winning both the sprint and main races in Portugal. The Ducati rider led home Jorge Martin and Marc Marquez in the first ever sprint race. And in the main race, Bagnaia beat Maverick Vinales and Marco Bezzecchi. Jack Miller finished seventh for KTM. Mitch Evans won the inaugural Sao Paulo E-Prix ahead of fellow Kiwi Nick Cassidy and Sam Bird. And in NASCAR, Tyler Reddick won the Cup Series race at the Circuit of the Americas. Jensen Button finished 18th and Kimi Raikkonen finished 29th. Okay, Castro mailbag time. One from the email this week with Peter asking, given the significant differences between a Gen 3 supercar and a car of the future car in terms of handling, grip, etc., is there likely 
it's going to be a problematic switch for co-drivers driving Super 2 cars and then jumping into a Gen 3 car. Thinking specifically at Bathurst where Super 2 has its own race, do you think extra practice sessions for co-drivers, maybe in order now there was such a big difference between a Super 2 car and a main game car? Uh, Peter, I'm not 100% sure it's going to be that much of an issue. Not all co-drivers race in Super 2, so the idea of driving very different cars even on the same weekend isn't all that foreign. We see some guys jumping out of Carrera Cup cars on the same weekend and there's a much bigger difference between a Carrera Cup car and a supercar than there is between even these two specifications of supercar. Um, as for the extra practice, well, I mean, we have the Sandown 500 back, so I think these guys are going to be feeling like they're getting a whole heap of extra practice now compared to what they've been working with with the last couple of years. That'll be a pretty, pretty decent uh, hit out, I reckon. Stefan? Yeah, I think you've ticked the key uh, key points off there. I mean, outside of actually driving the Gen 3 cars at test days and, and Sandown and things, like Super 2 is still the best place to prepare. Yeah. Like, sure, Gen 3 has less aero, but when you look at the overall package and the tyre is essentially the same, you've got the lock diff, the weight's not all that much different. I mean, like, in the overall scheme of things, the package is relatively similar. So certainly compared to... To the categories the other guys racing in like career cup as you say um yeah it's it's not all that different in the in the scheme of things all righty let's hand out some castrol stars of the week and my castrol star this week is going to nascar truck race winner zane smith who managed to set his truck on fire during post-race celebrations at the circuit of the americas the mud flaps actually caught fire which is not something we say about a racing car all that often. But anyway, look, he set a new benchmark for Shane Van Gisbergen in terms of post-race celebrations. I can just imagine Scafe's face when Shane douses his Camaro in petrol and flicks a match over his shoulder as he walks away from it on the front straight in Adelaide at the end of November. That is going to be spectacular. Stefan, your star? Hang on a minute. Why did that car have mud flaps on it? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not fully across the truck series, but it's, it's had mud flaps. There you go. Yeah, it must be. I don't know if they expected rain or something, but uh, that that's bizarre. Yeah. But uh, I'm sticking with the NASCAR theme and going with Tyler Reddick as my Castrol Star of the Week. He was a class above in the NASCAR Cup Series at the Circuit of the Americas and at least gave the race a legitimate winner. I've got to say, I tuned in for the last 10 or 15 laps and it was some of the dumbest road course racing I've ever seen. I mean, when there's no sort of judicial consequences, there's no respect between the drivers, barely any track limits, and the cars were just built like tanks. It was just a breeding ground for, for stupidity. And this sort of no rules approach that they have over there is is sometimes sort of like glorified as a path that supercars should go down. But man, from seeing, seeing some of that madness on those restarts, no thanks. Wow. I'm sure you're looking forward to your new job in the NASCAR marketing department if you can come up with slogans like breeding ground for stupidity. That is is impressive. Anyway, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present, and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.